Well, grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're so glad that you're here this morning, here, here with us to, to worship in this building. We're also grateful for those who are joining us online. If you do have a Bible, be turning it to the last part of John 11. We want to look at the, the end of John 11 and the beginning of John 12 this morning. We've been in the Gospel of John for, for many weeks now, and we've been meditating on these words uh, one of the things that's coming up in, in April, the 1st of April, um, there's going to be a day where our kids come together, not just our kids, but kids from surrounding churches who are going to have a Bible Bowl and some other competitions and things like that on the Gospel of John. So we're grateful for that. We're, we're grateful that our kids are diving deep into this book, and I, I hope you are too. And if you have kids or grandkids at home, I hope that you'll ask them about the Gospel of John and talk to them and just... Uh, begin conversations about the Gospel of John. We can do that too. You know, it's funny how we talk about all kinds of things, um, you know, the sports, weather, whatever. But how wonderful would it be to talk about Scripture and what God's doing and the ways that God are moving? So John 11, beginning of verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem, before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. And six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Well, this text right here marks a transition in the Gospel of John. So we're, we're, we're moving from the signs the, that Jesus has done to the events that are going to lead to his crucifixion. And, and in between these two major sections, we find this beautiful story about Mary and Jesus. And the events that, that lead up to this story are quite remarkable. Lazarus, who is the, the brother of Mary and Martha, he becomes sick and he dies. This happens in chapter 11. And Lazarus is Jesus' friend. He is someone whom Jesus loves. And Jesus is so moved by, by this loss and the surrounding events that, that, that happen around this loss that, that we read in Scripture that Jesus weeps. 
And we learn that he mourns with all those who are mourning. And so uh, sometimes we sing a song, does Jesus care? And the answer is yes, Jesus cares. He cares when we hurt. He cares when we experience grief. He cares deeply about the loss of life. Because death is an enemy. It's an enemy that Jesus is about to face and conquer. When our world gets turned upside down, Jesus cares. And he meets us in our pain and he weeps as we weep. Now we see this in John 11, but we also see more. We see that Jesus is not content with the way that things are. That he he comes not only to weep with us, but he comes to redeem. He comes to make all things right. He, He comes to overcome sin and evil and even death itself. And this is the work of Christ. And for all of this, we are grateful. Jesus raises Lazarus from the grave. And this is the the basis for the events that take place in John 12. And so as the chapter opens, we meet Jesus at a table. And he's dining with his friends. Chapter 12 and verse 2 tells us that, that Martha was serving and that Lazarus was reclining at the table with Jesus. Now just think about that for a moment. Don't, don't read that too quickly. Don't just skip over verse 2. Just a few days ago, Lazarus was dead. Not only was he dead, he was buried. And, and his body had already began to decay. And his friends and family, they were stricken with grief. And they were mourning this terrible loss. And they were just kind of understanding that in their minds that life was never going to be the same. That is John chapter 11. But here in John chapter 12, Lazarus is alive and well. And he's sitting at a table with Jesus. And there are echoes here in this passage for what is to come. Because one day, Jesus is going to right all the wrongs that we see around us. And death itself will be undone. And we will all dine at table with those who have gone on before us. You know, one of the images that, that we're given of the life to come is that of a great banquet. And so when Jesus returns, and we are living in the new heavens and new earth, we will dine together. We will sit at the table with Jesus. And we'll be joined by by faithful followers of God that that we have only read about. We'll, We'll be at the table with Lazarus. And we'll be reunited with loved ones who we desperately miss. The Lord's Supper that we partake of every first day of the week, it points us to this future reality. And so the Lord's Supper is, you know, we look back, we look back at what Jesus has done for us, but we also look forward to what is to come. And when we read passages like John 12, we should pick up on these themes. And this text is directing our thoughts to something 
greater that is on the horizon. We live in a broken world. We, we live in a world of, of sickness and death. But we must never forget that it's not always going to be this way. And so we long for the return of Jesus when sickness and death will be no more. And Jesus will heal all this brokenness. And we will meet him at the table. As we look at John chapter 12, there are two sets of competing ideas uh, that, that we should notice, two sets of competing ideas that I want to talk about this morning. The first one is obvious, or it should be obvious to us. It's, it's greed versus sacrifice. Or we could put it this way, it is giving versus clinging. What are we? Are, are we people who give or are we people who cling? Well, as Jesus and, and Lazarus are, are reclining at the table, Mary comes to Jesus and she anoints his feet with expensive oil. This was not something that happened every day. It was not a normal thing. It was an extravagant act. To take something that was about worse a year's wages. And so just think about what you earn in one year. That's about how much this ointment costs. And she doesn't just use a, a little bit of it or a fraction of it. She uses all of it at once on Jesus. And, and, and this would have been shocking. The, the, the amount of perfume here, the amount of ointment the, the, the scent is so strong that it fills the entire house. You can just smell it everywhere you go. How does one respond to the person who brings back your brother from the grave? What is appropriate? This magnificent act, like the others that came before it, I'm talking about the act of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, it's a sign that reveals the identity of Jesus. And so we learn that he's more than a great teacher. He's more than a prophet. He is God in the flesh. And he has overcome the power of death. And so how does a person respond when they meet God, what are we to give him? Mary takes a ridiculous amount of perfume and anoints his feet and then uses her hair to wipe them. And she gives Jesus all that she has. She doesn't hold anything back. She does not think to herself, well, you know what? About half this amount of perfume would be more than anyone else is going to give. I, I could just do that. Mary is not worrying about the future here. She is enraptured by being in the presence of Jesus, and she sacrifices, she gives over the top. Now that's Mary. The other person in the story is Judas. And, and John gives us some, some interesting insight about Judas uh, in verse 6. He, he tells us that Judas was a thief. He tells us that 
He was in charge of the treasury and he used to take from it. And Judas looks at what Mary is doing and he thinks it's absurd. He sees it as a waste. He says, you know, we could help the poor, but he really doesn't want to help the poor. He has other motives. He's greedy. He wants more money. He he does not want to let any of the money he has go. He wants to have it all for himself. And so it's really fascinating here that you have Mary and Judas, and and both of these individuals, they've spent time with Jesus. They've heard his teachings. They've seen his signs. They've seen his miracles. Both of them witnessed Lazarus being raised from the dead. They saw a dead body, a body that reeked with the odor of death, and that body was brought back to life. And after all of this, Mary and Judas are are both here in John chapter 12 in the presence of Christ. But they respond in very different ways. Mary's response is sacrifice. It is to give all that she has to Jesus. Judas's response is to criticize and to cling to whatever he has. The the thoughts and actions of Judas are intriguing. And, And here's why. We, we often want to class people as believers and non-believers. You know, we say, well, you know, look at the world. There's, there's believers on one side. There's non-believers on the other side. And the believers, they acknowledge God's existence. They do what is right. And then the non-believers, they refuse to accept the existence of God, and they do what is wrong. And it would be really nice if the world was just that black and white. But it's not. Because here's the thing, where do we classify Judas? Judas is a believer. Judas is a disciple of Jesus. He he, he knows who Jesus is. He, He knows what he's done. He's seen all the miracles. So why doesn't Judas behave like Mary? Why doesn't he celebrate Jesus and sacrifice on his behalf. It is because there are motives in Judas's life that are stronger than God. And in this case, it's the love of money. And here's what we need to understand. A person can be a believer and still be lost. A person can be a student of Jesus and live a life that is contrary to what God wants. It's not enough to say, I believe in God. It's not enough to say, well, I know the teachings of Jesus. We are to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we cannot follow God in money. We cannot serve God and something else. We cannot say, you know, I'll take a little bit of Jesus on Sunday to go along 
with my devotion to something else the rest of the week. It just doesn't work that way. And if we're choosing Jesus and something else, whatever that something else might be, then that something else is going to win out. God is deserving of our full devotion. And and we're to follow him the way that Mary does, not the way that Judas does. We're to give God everything we have and and, and hold nothing back. And and sacrifice is not only the way of Mary, it is the way of Jesus. And so we're to make sacrifices for God. We're to sacrifice for others rather than cling to whatever we can get our hands on. Okay, the the other competing set of ideas in this text is not as obvious. It is beauty versus utility, or, or we might say beauty versus what is practical. Here's an interesting exercise. You know, we're, we're, giving, we're given several bits of extra information in this passage in John chapter 12. And, and all of these extra bits of information, what I mean is that these events happened when Jesus was alive, and then when John writes about them 60 years later, he includes some details that, that weren't stated when the events happened. Okay, and all of these details, this information, it pertains to Judas. For instance, in verse 4, we're told that he's about to betray Jesus. Okay, so, so John's foreshadowing. He's saying this, this is going to happen a little bit later. And then in verse 6, we're told that he's greedy and a thief. What if we read this passage and took these parts out? Would, would Judas's argument here have more sway? Would we be more willing to go along with Judas? Listen and tell me what you think. So I'm going to take out sort of the extra bits of information we're given here and just read the text this way. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there. And Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Why not? What do you think? Does Judas have a point if we don't know all these extra details about Judas? Well, I, 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 will, I don't know what you're thinking, but I'll admit that there are some days that I would, I would side with Judas. You know, if we're, if we're being honest, I think most of us would. What if we reframed the argument? What if we put it in a different way? What if we, were, we, we had some money, maybe a large sum of money, and we were given the option of building a cross or building something beautiful for Jesus something to honor him or taking that money and giving it to the poor? What would we do? I think most of us would choose giving the money to the poor, wouldn't we? 
And we would believe that we were doing the right thing. And we would say things like, well, Jesus commands us to help the poor and he wants us to help the poor. And yet we learn here in this passage that sometimes it's right to choose beauty. Now, Jesus is not teaching us that we are to always choose beauty over helping the poor or some other important task. That's not what he's teaching us. But what he is teaching us is that beauty is important. And what Mary does is beautiful. She takes the time to appreciate the glory of God. She she puts on hold all the the cares of the world, and, and there are many of them, in order to acknowledge Jesus who is right in front of her. She recognizes the beautiful, and she does something beautiful. And we need beauty in our life. True beauty points us to God. It reminds us of our Creator. It is reminiscent of our Savior. And beauty is powerful. It it wakes people up from the hold that the world has on them. And beauty can penetrate hearts that are hard, hearts that are dull. Beauty is transcendental. And what I mean by that is there's always something behind it. There's something deeper. There's something more meaningful there. If we look closely, we pay attention. Who wants to live in a world where there's no beauty? No one. And and, and there's this tension in this text, and there's this tension in the world between what is beautiful and what is useful. And I think that most of us understand this, even though we don't talk about it. Um, Let me give you an example. None of us want to live in a hospital room. Why? If you think about it, they're extremely practical. They do exactly what they're designed to do. The problem is they're ugly. They're not beautiful. We want to live where there's beauty. We want a nice view. We want to be able to see the sunset. We, We decorate our homes so that they look nice. And beauty makes life worth living. Have you ever thought why this is? You know, why, why, why do I need beauty? Well, there's something deep within us that longs for beauty. And it's because God is beautiful. The, the, the psalmist understands this. He says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, why? What's, what do I want to do? What, what, what am I seeking? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. The psalmist says, I just want to look at the beauty of God for the rest of my life. A word in Scripture that is closely related to beauty um, that, that often describes God is glory. What is glorious is set apart. It is deserving of our praise and exaltation. It captures our attention. We don't want to look away. And so when we encounter the glorious or the beautiful, 
We're not the same. It changes us in some way. This is the point of 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, beholding the beauty of our Lord and Savior, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. As we look at the beauty of Christ, we're becoming beautiful ourselves. That's what Paul is saying there. We as Christians are, are to focus our attention on the beauty of Christ. We're to meditate on it, we're to contemplate it. And as we do this, we are changed into the image of Christ. The beauty of Christ's love makes us want to be more loving. The, the, the beauty of, of Jesus' sacrificial nature makes us want to live sacrificially. The beauty of His grace makes us want to be more graceful. The church does not gather to discuss the problems of the world. That's not the purpose of the church. The church gathers to behold the glory of Jesus. Amen. What happens when we miss the glory of Jesus? Think about that. What happens when we, we're just going through life and we never see it? We never see God's glory. We never see the beauty of Christ. Well, when that happens, we're not changed. We're not transformed into the image of Christ. We begin to retreat back to our old ways. That's what's going on with Judas in the text. He just doesn't see. And so there's this, this tension between beauty and utility, and we see it here. Both are needed... Both are needed. It's important that we do the work of the church. It's important that we help the poor. But we have to get the order right. And so we're to begin with beauty. We're to begin with beholding the glory of the Lord. As we are fixing our eyes on Jesus, we are then led to go out into the world and to do what is good. We are led to help others and to share the beauty that, that we now know with other people around us. And if we don't get the order right, then we don't have anything to share with the people whom we're helping. There is no depth to our helping. Because ultimately what we want to do is we want to introduce people to a beautiful community and point them to a beautiful Savior. We live in a, a broken world. We live in a complicated world. And, and you know, as we face this each and every day, we can be overwhelmed by all of it. You know, where, where do we look? What do we do? It may sound simple, but here's what we do. We begin by beholding the glory of the Lord. We focus our attention on the beauty of Jesus. Because this is the position 
from which we must live and operate. Our attention should not be focused on all the ugliness in this world. We should not let ugliness consume our thoughts. It should not control what we say and what we talk about all the time. We're not to operate from a position of ugliness. We're to look to Jesus and operate from a position of beauty. We're to be transformed by Jesus. We're to become beautiful like Jesus. And we can only do this if we're spending time beholding the glory of the Lord. I know some of us are tired. Some of us are hurting. And what we need in life is beauty. We need to know that this world is not all ugliness. And maybe the the little beauty that you glimpse this week, that might be the only thing that's carrying you into next week. And so I would just encourage all of us to, to pay attention to beauty and to fill your life with beautiful things and to always remember that beauty is pointing us to God. And so our attention should be on the beautiful, but then we should go out into the world and we should do what is beautiful. Again, there's a a lot of ugliness in the world. We understand that. We don't need any more ugliness. What we need is beauty. And the world needs to see the beauty of Christ. And that begins with us. It begins in our places of work. It begins in our neighborhood. And so we need to be asking ourselves, what can I do to make this community that I live in more beautiful like Jesus? What can I do to to introduce beauty into my relationships with others, into my conversations with others? And it does not have to be big. It can be small. It can be simple. But do something to remind people that ugliness is not all there is. Because beauty is a powerful force in this world, and it leads to God. And we need to be a people who do beautiful things and act in beautiful ways and point people to the beauty of of our Savior. Who would have imagined that a story about a woman who anoints Jesus' feet with, with oil, that this story would make it into the Gospels? You know, just think about that for a moment. Je- Jesus does many things, He does many miracles, many wonderful things. He teaches on many occasions. John tells us at the end of the gospel, he says, I I can't record everything that Jesus did. Why this story? Maybe because it reminds us that in this world full of sin and darkness, we need beauty. And Mary was able to see this. She pauses She takes this expensive ointment and she acknowledges the beauty of our Savior. 
And our calling has not changed. It's the same. I would encourage all of us to take time to pause. Do not let the the hustle of this world distract you from what really matters. Find ways to sacrifice and to give. Refuse to be led away by the idols of consumerism and greed that capture many hearts today. But most importantly, look for opportunities to do something beautiful. Focus on the beauty of Jesus and let it transform who you are and what you do. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we praise you for who you are. You are beautiful. You are glorious. And we are in awe of you and all of your ways. As we go out from this place today and return to our homes, our workplaces, our communities, may your spirit open our eyes to the vastness and splendor of your beauty all around us. May we hear and smell and see and touch your glory in all your creation. Let us see your beauty even in the brokenness of the people around us. People created in your image. People waiting to experience the redemption that comes only through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Be with us as we go now to love and serve. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus.